All right, we are in a series that is basically on the subject of eschatology. The series is entitled, regardless of what your bulletin says, What's Next? Waiting for the Kingdom to Come. And the message title today is, Salvation is from the Jews. This um, series, I began with the claim that uh, the subject of eschatology is misunderstood in Christianity because of two issues. The first of these is replacement theology, which has removed completely or significantly diminished and compartmentalized the role um, and the centrality of Israel, that is the Jewish people, in God's plan of salvation. The second is the tendency of Christianity to miss the point of the gospel by seeing it as a message that will change the world rather than a call first to Israel and then to those from the nations who fear God to repent and return to God through the ministry and message of Yeshua, who by means of his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension has prepared for the establishment of the promised restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which will take place at the fullness of his return. Now last week I talked about creation past, which was destroyed by the flood. The present creation, which is the focus of God's plan of salvation, but which will be destroyed by fire along with the wicked. And the new creation, which will replace the present one. I mentioned that the major Christian views regarding the return of Jesus, and I criticized them based on these two issues. Amillennialism is flawed because of its replacement theology. Postmillennialism is flawed by missing the point of the gospel. And premillennialism is flawed both by its residue of replacement theology and its missing the point of the gospel. I will be talking more about those as we uh, go through the series. Today I want to address the centrality and primacy of the role of Israel in God's plan of salvation and their priority in the focus of the gospel. We're going to turn together to John chapter 4, a passage you're very familiar with, John, John's gospel chapter 4, the uh, encounter with the Samaritan woman. We're going to pick it up at verse 19. Uh, I'm going to assume you know most of the story of this, and I just want to read uh, a between uh, verses 19 and 26. So the woman, the Samaritan woman, said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, meaning the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming uh, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. That's my primary text for today. Uh, God is spirit, uh, and those... Well, let let me pick this up, sorry. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Now, I want to zero in on the text uh, of verse 22, but let me just say a couple of things. Uh, the encounter with the woman, the, the Samaritan woman, is well known. And in the discussion between Jesus and this woman, several issues are raised. But the one that's, that I want to talk about today is in verse 22, when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans are a group of people who saw themselves as the children of Jacob or Israel, a, a remnant, if you will, of the northern kingdom. Uh, they were Israelites from the northern kingdom who were not taken uh, in the Assyrian uh, conquest, but began to intermarry with Gentiles. When the Judean uh, Babylonian captivity begun, uh, came back under Ezra and Zerubbabel, some of these people wanted to help, but they were problematic, and Ezra and the returning Jews rejected them in the building of the temple in Jerusalem, rebuilding it. And in turn, this group began to oppose them. So the Samaritans built their own temple at Shechem near uh, Mount Gerizim. That's the place where the blessings and the curses were, were done when they entered the land. And at the time of Jesus, the rift between the Samaritans and the Judeans was large enough that pious Jews would not speak to Samaritans nor travel through their land. They would walk around Samaria, go down along the River Jordan, and then come up to Jerusalem that way. And so what we have is we have a situation where uh, this woman is surprised that Jesus is speaking to her. He asks her to give him water. He speaks of the living water. She asks him to give her that water. And then he talks to her about the men in her life. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And she goes to the question of where worship should be. And it's in that context that Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We Jews... Worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So what is Jesus talking about here? This is not a verse that gets preached very often in uh, non-Jewish context. It's certainly not talked about much in Baptist context. I don't think I ever heard a uh, Baptist pastor talk about it. So let me talk about it. I want to begin by looking at Genesis chapter 11. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis 11. I told you in this series I'm going to describe all the Legos and then we'll put them together at the end of the series. So we last week looked at the creations. This time we're going to look at the nations and Israel. In Genesis chapter 11, I've got to get there first. We are at the period right after the flood. At that time, there are no nations and there are no Israel. There is simply people who have come from Adam and Eve and now people who have come from the children of Noah. And the scripture says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about, they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, let us build uh, for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Interesting. The Lord had said first to Adam and Eve, he repeats that to Noah and his family, that you are to multiply and fill the earth. And they're saying, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here. We don't want to be scattered. Let's build a settlement. Uh, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they do. And now nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible to them. This parallels the language of Adam and Eve having sinned, and God saying, now lest they take their hand and eat of the tree of life. In other words, we can't let this continue in this direction. We're going to change the direction. So let us go down and confuse their languages, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad, From there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Then the scripture begins to give uh, genealogy. I'm going to let it go there. I want you to catch what's going on. The first thing that God does in this present creation, remember Peter tells us, The world that was out of water was destroyed by water. This present creation is awaiting a destruction of fire and that will be replaced by a new heaven and earth. So the first thing God does in this present creation is create people groups. Now as he confounds the languages, that's why we speak these confounded languages... He will scatter them because you're not going to hang around someone who makes no sense to you. So they would group themselves based on the languages and scatter themselves around the earth. And as this migration goes on, we are going to begin to get linguistic differences. We're going to get cultural differences. We're going to get phenotypic differences as we adapt to environments. And we begin to get the so-called races and nations. For the Bible, its focus is on the nations. The nations are now established. In other words, God begins by creating the nations, what are called Gentiles in the scripture. And they are the first that God is going to create. But he is not going to create their culture. Their culture is going to be, in some sense, self-made as they adapt and try to figure out what they do. And while there is much that I could address in that, I simply want you to be aware that we are started first. And we are started as part of what God's plan, ultimately to save the creation and to restore the creation to goodness uh, as he did in the beginning. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul 
is going to talk about these Gentiles. And he is going to talk about Gentiles who have now come to faith. In chapter 2, verse 12, the apostle says this. Remember that you at that time, he's talking about when you were Gentiles, right? So in verse 11 he says, Remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that, it, that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's an interesting thing. I want you to catch the condition of the nations as they were created. They were separated from Messiah and that promise. They were excluded from Israel. In fact, when they were made, there was no Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope and they were without God in the world. And so what did they do? They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. They came up with ideas about what the gods might be like. And they walked in darkness. They were away from God and without hope. And what do nations in that condition do? They tend to fight with each other. Because the other group is weird, the other group is evil, the other group is bad. And the nations learned war. And the ways of the nations have been war ever since. There have been brief times when peace has broken out, but it hasn't lasted long. The natural condition of human communities is war. Now, having said that, uh, we are going to see that God is going to do something. He's going to, from those Gentiles, select an individual, his name is Avram, his name will be changed to Abraham, to become the father of a chosen people of God, to inherit the land of promise, and to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This nation, Israel, is going to be a light to the nations because they are the only culture and way of life that is going to be directly created by God himself. At Sinai, God is going to take Israel and say to them, this is how you will live. You're not going to live like the nations where you've been. You're not going to live like the nations where I'm bringing you. You're going to walk in my ways and in my statutes and you will be ultimately a light to those nations that are walking in darkness. When you obey me, they will see my wisdom and my glory in what you do and they will say, what nation has a God that is so wise? When you don't obey me, I will punish you that they may fear me and know my name. Israel is central to everything God is doing in this creation, particularly the salvation of mankind. Now, I'm not going to go through all those verses because you know those verses. We've been through them a lot. What I want you to do is I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 3. Because here Paul, in one statement, is going to sum up everything that I just said. 
In Romans 3, 1 and 2, Paul says this. Then what is the advantage of the Jew? And what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, if you're a standard Christian thinking replacement theology, the answer is nothing, honey. There's no benefit to it. In fact, it's a problem. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that means not all, but first and foremost, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the word oracles there is a word that basically means the sayings of God. Who was given the word of God? Israel was giving the word of God. He wrote it first on the tablets with his finger. He had Moses write down his ways. And they have carried that Torah and the prophets from that day forward. No other nation was given that revelation. And Paul says, that is their advantage. We walked in darkness. They had a light. Thy word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We stumbled in darkness. They had the light and the presence of God. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Little Bible drill this morning. Paul's now grieving over his brethren, some of whom uh, are not accepting the good news. I'll talk more about that next week. Uh, and Paul says in verses 3 to 5, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. That's the condition of the Gentiles. For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now look how he describes them in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons? That's a major doctrine we have to talk about. This is not about him saying, oh, I'm going to make you my son. It's you are my children, and I'm going to bring you to sonship. Adoption of sons is when you come into your maturity in uh, the family. He says, theirs is the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the Torah, and the temple service, and the promises whose are the patriarchs, and from whom Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, will come, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, where do you get replacement theology with those verses? The only way you get it is by ignoring those verses. Paul says the advantage of the Jew is much in every way. They had the words of God. They have the promises they have the covenants. All the blessings that are going to ultimately come to the Gentiles are coming in and through them. Boy, that is not the way it's told in most churches. Yes, I know. Right. To make it completed. But it isn't. Okay? So... Important to understand that they, to them, belong the adoptions of sons. They have the giving of the Torah and the temple service and the promises and the patriarchs. And it is from them that the Messiah is coming according to the flesh. 
So Israel is the main plan through which God is working to bring salvation to this present creation. They are the first fruits of salvation of humanity. And we Gentiles are brought into that plan by the blood of Messiah. They are not a failed plan or a means that will be removed and replaced when the Messiah comes. They are the first to receive and the first to lose because God's blessing and His judgment comes to Israel first. No doubt the gospel is to them first. I'll talk more about that next week. But today we're talking about the plan of God. So, back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 13. He said that you were Gentiles, you were excluded, you were separated, you were without hope and without God in the world. But in verse 13 he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace, who has made both groups, that's Jews and the nations, uh, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, not the law, the enmity uh, in the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new humanity. Shouldn't say one new man. Thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. And by it having put to death the enmity. The enmity between Israel and the nations. We're reading about anti-Semitism. This is where we're going in a couple of weeks. To address why that enmity is there. And in the body that enmity is not supposed to be there. And yet in replacement theology... And in misconstruing the gospel, anti-Semitism lives in the body. It's not meant to be that way. So, he says, we are near through the blood of Messiah Yeshua. We have been made near. Near to what? Near to Messiah, to the commonwealth of Israel to the covenants of promise, to hope and to God. We're brought near because we were far. Who was already near? Israel. Israel was near. Those who are far away are the nations. But he is now going to build us, as this passage says, into a temple of God to be inhabited by his spirit and to be at peace with God and with one another. And to become one new humanity. That is happening. But it's not yet. So now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. It's not happening for two reasons. The primary reason though is on the Gentile side of this. So in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the apostle says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, 
that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And he says, just as you were once disobedient, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these who are now being disobedient, because of the mercy shown to you, they also will be shown mercy. Israel is not thrown aside in this process. They had a head start. They were nearer. Now you know what that's like if you've ever run a race. When you're running a race towards something, if somebody's got a head start, you kind of want them to slow down. Because you're never going to catch up. And that's what's happening. What the Lord has done is He's partially hardened Israel as he's bringing us to catch up. Not to replace, so that we can come alongside. Because the body has to have Jews and the nations together at peace in the kingdom that will be restored to Israel, where Israel is the head and not the tail. So we see this is not complete. There's a major error of replacement theology which sees Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as having completed and replaced Israel and the law and ushered in a salvation of mankind that now makes us neither Jew nor Gentile and which has just made us one new man. That's not true. God is saving Israel in part and hardening Israel in part until the fullness of the nations is brought in. And then all Israel will be saved. And Paul attaches to that resurrection from the dead. They will be saved as Israel. We will be saved as the nations redeemed from various nations so that it will be Israel and the nations in the kingdom. And that kingdom will be the restored kingdom to Israel, which will ultimately be replaced by the new creation. But I'll talk about that later. The salvation being spoken in the scriptures is not a salvation of people. It's a salvation of this present creation. I want you to turn to Romans 8. The Apostle says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's talking about both Jews and those from the nations who will receive the full glory at the resurrection. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. I want to talk about this. This is the adoption that is talked about. John kind of alludes to this. He says, think of the love that God has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. We are the children of God. 
But that's not where we're going to stay. We're going to become sons of God. In other words, there is an adoption. Now, not an adoption like, this is not my kid, I'm going to make them my kid. That's how it's preached often. That's not what this is talking about. This is a what Paul talks about in Galatians. A child may be the heir of everything. But if he's a child, he's under tutors and teachers until the day appointed by the Father when he will come into his own. And when he comes into his own, that's his adoption. It's like when we adopt a budget. We don't take somebody else's budget and make it our own. We take our budget and put it into force. That's what the Spirit of God is, the spirit of adoption, to catechize us, to bring us to maturity, not individually, but communally into the body, so that every part supplies that which it's supposed to, and the body edifies itself in love. We're not doing that. That's the... That's the salvation of the humanity. But Paul's talking about here that there's more than that. He says, because, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility or vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but you go into the prophets and you're going to see God saying, it's okay, mountains, I'm going to make it better. It's okay, Jerusalem, I'm going to make it better. When God cursed the creation, it suffers because of man's sin. God is going to deal with man's sin, transform the remnant from the nations and, and all Israel, and he's going to bring this creation to its full apex, so that it once again can be said, it is very good, and the curse will be no more. And in that kingdom, there will be all the promises that will be done. The focus of salvation is the present creation, which must be redeemed. The present heavens and the earth itself will be set free from its bearing the corruption of human sin by Israel and the nations. And the glory of God has to be fully expressed in this creation. And that will happen when God brings about the adoption of sons, the resurrection of the body. God will restore the kingdom to Israel. The Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the nations will come to the temple. And it will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Isaiah 2 is our song. It's the nation singing, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's talking of when we as the nations come up with Israel. We've been far. We're near. They're already there because they're in the land of promise that God promised to their fathers. All of that still has to happen. And the church made that all go away with replacement theology. Now we long for heaven. Now we long for 
the new heaven. Now we long for the new creation. And the new creation is part of this. I'm going to talk about the overlap in a couple of weeks. But the focus of the salvation of God through the law and the prophets is mostly about the restoration of this creation. That's salvation. God, at the end of Isaiah, says, by the way, i got a new thing I'm doing. I'm going to make all things new. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the imagination of men the things that I've got planned. But I'm fixing this one first. This one is going to see all my glory before the principalities and powers of heaven. And all mankind will know that I am the Lord and that Israel is my possession and Israel is my people. Salvation. Uh, look at uh, chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, no, verse 23, I'm sorry. Not only this, because he says that the creation is still groaning and suffering. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for it, what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait for it. Boy, you and I have been born again. Our spirit, there's a part of us that just wants God. And then there's the flesh. My flesh didn't get born again. My mind didn't get born again. I have to transform my mind. My spirit was born again. My mind's in the process of being transformed. But this blasted flesh, flesh is a problem. Yours may not be, but mine is. Not only is it beginning to break down like the world is breaking down because of my age, but in it is that principle of sin. And that will ultimately be done with by the resurrection. And then I will fully be able to reflect the glory of God. And that will happen in the kingdom to come. The new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be established after God does this. The creation, the new creation, the scripture says, has no temple. So there are biblical texts that talk about the restoration, but it's referring to the restoration of this creation, not to the new heaven and earth. And there are texts that are related to the new heaven and new earth, but these things overlap. They're not a up to here and then everything changes. There is something new beginning to be done. I've talked about this before. The new one is being created. It will ultimately be where we are. But this one he is restoring. And part, when we talk about salvation, it's not about us being on layaway until the rapture. It's the idea that we are anticipating his son coming from heaven and restoring all things. The disciples thought it was going to happen immediately. Acts 1, they go, you're going to restore the kingdom to heaven now? He says, not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has put in his own way. Your job is to be a witness to me. In other words, the gospel has to go out to the Jew first and tell them all the promises are about to be done. I have removed the sin of Jacob. Removed the sin of Jacob. We love Christmas. We love the Galatians passage, but it says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You and I were never under the law. 
He's talking about Israel. Salvation, first and foremost, comes to Israel, and then through the mystery of the gospel, comes to all mankind. What an incredible thing, but we've lost that. Somehow, we've got ours, who cares about Israel? No, we don't boast against the natural branches. We should be praying for them. We should be uh, trying desperately to heal that wound that we have partially made through anti-Semitism, through replacement theology, and all the other things because they don't recognize their own good news because we have altered it. It's almost as if you took a beautiful, beautiful symphony and you were playing it by a grunge band. Someone who knows it might get it, but the one who's looking for the symphony wouldn't recognize it. So, we need to think about this. We need to be clarified in this because we need to undo as much as we can, in our own thinking, replacement theology and missing the point of the gospel so that we can come alongside that remnant of Israel because only a partial hardening has come to them. And we need to see the body of Messiah as the nations and Israel. Israel as Israel, and us as the redeemed of the nations. So, let's pray.